Amelia Earhart was, in her days, in the 1930s, was the most famous woman in the world. She was given rewards and accolades from all the heads of the European states, and from the United States, she was given medals and, and National Geographic Awards. Uh, she was quite the headline in her day. Ladies and gentlemen, we I'm not so sure I would have gotten in that. I would have flown in that airplane with Amelia Earhart. Yeah, I would have taken the bus. <laughs> I would have taken the bus, I'll say. She, <laughs> she really had no idea of the danger she was facing. It's not much of a secret in the Marshall Islands that Amelia Earhart crashed on Millie Atoll. When it came time to land on the island of Saipan, it is believed that the Marine Corps found the grave of Amelia Earhart and had it exhumed and the body sent back to Washington. What? That's crazy. This is such a complicated... Uh, you want me to go into the more details? I can tell you more details about this. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7 coming at you with an installment of the program that is seven long years in the making as BOA Audio finally examines the infamous Amelia Earhart disappearance mystery with our guest Carol Lynn Dow author of the book, The Lost Flight of Amelia Earhart. As you'll hear when the conversation gets rolling, this is a topic I've wanted to cover on the program for years, and was absolutely thrilled to get Carol on the program to delve into this mystery in depth. As such, it is a comprehensive conversation, my friends. Over the course of the next two hours, we will discuss Amelia Earhart's rise to fame and her feats as an aviatrix, her attempt to fly around the world and the various ways in which her journey was doomed, and what ultimately may have become of the legendary pilot. We'll look at all the various theories surrounding Amelia Earhart's fate and dig into Carol's contention that the famed aviatrix crashed in the Marshall Islands, was captured by the Japanese, and executed as a prisoner of war. Along the way, we'll look at Amelia Earhart conspiracy theories and the hard science of early aviation, as well as the usual side roads and tangents familiar to listeners of the program. Altogether, it is a long-overdue episode which delves into one of the world's most enduring and intriguing mysteries as we search for Amelia Earhart with Carol Lynn Dow. 
For those of you who are unfamiliar with Carol Lynn Dow, please allow me to provide you with a little background on her. Carol Lynn Dow, fresh out of college, started out life as a publisher and editor of a stock market magazine called The Dow Digest. After a successful career, Dow Digest was sold to a Kansas City investors. Several years later, it was sold to Financial World, a New York City stock market magazine, which, shortly thereafter, went out of business. When Carol had the magazine, Dow Digest developed a circulation that reached 36,000 paid and had quite a name and reputation on Wall Street. Two of the terms which the magazine introduced were economic indicators and the area of relative strength. After the magazine was sold, Carol moved to Dallas, Texas, became a business broker, and developed a second career in mergers and acquisitions. Shortly thereafter, she took early retirement, sold her airplane, and pursued a dream she has always had, writing books and movies. To add more fuel to her current work, she met Muriel Earhart Morrissey, Amelia Earhart's sister, Pidge, on a trip to Boston, and they became fast friends. Her website is www.lostflight.net, pretty simple, all one word, lostflight.net. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 24th, 2013. Carol Lynn Dow, talking about the Amelia Earhart disappearance mystery on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. And here we are coming up upon the very end of this season. We are very close to the season finale. And it is thrilling for me today to finally get to a topic that I have wanted to discuss on this program for seven long years. And that is one of the great mysteries of the 20th century. Really one of the great mysteries in American history if not the world, uh, something that has captivated so many people for 75, 76 years now, and that is, of course, the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. I have been trying to find various guests on this topic for years and years and years, and finally, I have found Carol Lynn Dow, and she is the author of the book The Lost Flight of Amelia Earhart, which is also something that she's trying to turn into a movie, and you can find out more about her whole milieu of work at AmeliaEarhartMovie.com. This topic is definitely one that has fascinated me for years. As many people know, I kind of grew up in the Unsolved Mysteries era of esoterica, and this one really is one of the tent poles of the entire paranormal field here for a lot of us who have looked at these mysteries for a very long time. So I'm very excited to have her on the program. Carol, welcome to BOA Audio. I'm just thrilled to be digging into this topic with you. Right. Uh, it was, uh, I appreciate your asking me to talk about Amelia Earhart because there's been recent developments uh, on the mystery and solving the mystery, and we think we might have our hands on the final answers but, uh, of course, time will only prove it's true. Uh, there has been, uh, recently, just this year, files <clears throat> from Fred Gurner, who was the CBS radio commentator from San Francisco, who wrote the book, the first book, actually, on Amelia Earhart's disappearance. 
and the name of the book was The Search for Amelia Earhart. His files just recently opened in Fredericksburg, Texas, at the National Museum of the Pacific War. I went down there and spent about three days looking through his file papers, and I came back quite amazed. There's quite a few things there to talk about. Another thing that has happened is we were sponsors of a trip that Dick Spink made to the Marshall Islands, and in particular, Amelia Toll, and he brought back what we think is an artifact off of Amelia Earhart's airplane. It's actually an inspection inspection plate off the engine cowling or the leading uh, the leading edges of the wing on Earhart's plane, and right now we are in the process of the the proving stage that this came from Earhart's plane, and as soon as we have that uh, authenticated, which we believe we will, then uh, we will issue a press release on this, and the whole world will know about that Amelia Earhart crashed in the Marshall Islands. Amelia Toll is the location. Wow. So how's that for an opener? <laughs> I was just going to say, wow, you don't waste any time, Carol. I- I'm already excited here. <laughs> well, we we generally, we're going to get back to all that stuff in, in, in quite some time. So so let's first find out a little bit about Carol Lynn Dow. You know, who are you? How did you find out? Well, obviously, you know, everybody knows about the Amelia Earhart story, but how did you become captivated by this story and decide to look into it and, you know, spend all this time researching uh, this famous disappearance? Well, I was originally a magazine publisher. Uh, My father was a stockbroker, and I grew up on the Wall Street Journal, and when I graduated from college, I started a magazine called the Dow Digest, and it was a stock market magazine, and we got it up to about 36,000 paid, and I sold it. And after that, I matriculated to California because I was interested in the movie industry. And uh, about, I'd say about a year later, I moved to Dallas, Texas, because that was the hot spot in the whole United States for growing cities. So when I wound up in Dallas, because of my background, stock market background, I became a business broker dealing in mergers and acquisitions, which is a form of commercial real estate. Uh, I sold the magazine way back in 1980-something. I can't remember the dates. And uh, I was looking for something to do. And I got interested in the life of Amelia Earhart, mainly because I had an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) I used to, uh, I was very successful in commercial real estate and, uh, I bought a Beechcraft Bonanza Vtail, a 1960 airplane. How about that? An old one, but airplanes are not judged by their age, they're judged by the time on the airframe. And uh, Bonanza <laughs> is good for 10,000 hours, and when I bought that airplane, it only had 4,500 hours on the, air, on the airframe, so it wasn't even halfway depleted, so to speak. Um, I sold the airplane, and afterwards I made a trip to Boston, a business trip to Boston, where I met Amelia Earhart's sister, Muriel. 
And Muriel and I became fast friends, and naturally I became intrigued with the idea of a movie about Amelia Earhart and the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. That's how it all started. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I bumped into allied artists on the Internet. We had a head-on collision, and we tried to make a movie out of the story. But uh, it's really tough these days to raise uh, 25 or $30 million to make a movie. It's kind of a lifetime adventure. <laughs> yeah. And it happens to some people, some people it doesn't happen to. But we haven't given up on the prospect. In fact, right now the prospects are better than ever because we have two documentaries, actually uh, three episodes coming out on Amelia Hart that we will, that uh, Felix Gerard at Allied Artists will attempt to uh, have aired on stations like uh, uh, the Discovery Channel. Uh, National Geographic Channel, the huh. uh, History Channel, they're all uh, possibilities for airing the documentaries. We think that once the documentaries get aired, that it's going to improve our chances of getting the movie made by leaps and bounds. Oh, absolutely, yeah, that'll definitely uh, generate yeah. a lot of interest. Right, because the interest will be there and we can get our story out. Now I got to ask you, Carol. Uh, yeah. You're talking about, you know, how your family was in Wall Street. Are you related to the to the Dow of of Wall Street? No, no, fame? no, no relation. Oh, okay. No relation. The name is the same. Actually, the name is Dove. D O V. Uh, Davinsky, Soviet Union. <laughs> and I, uh, I dropped the Insky. Hmm. Uh, because I didn't, uh, you know, I was being called. Uh, uh, they thought I was from Poland, and I'm not from Poland. I'm from Russia. <laughs> and so I used Dove, and Dove didn't work too good, so I used Dow. And when the stock market magazine came along, it was a perfect uh, way, I thought, to protect the name so I could use the name on on the name uh, on the magazine. The name of the magazine was Dow Digest. So that was a natural. Uh, it turned out to be a good move. I say, I guess so. Yeah, it was very fortuitous. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's. I, I like I said. I mean, uh, I want to get later on into this into this friendship you have with Muriel because I'm definitely interested in what she thinks happened to her sister. But for the people who you know have been living under a rock, or let's let's face it, some of the younger listeners they probably only know about this tangentially because the Amelia Earhart story was huge for a very long time, and it seems like in the last fifteen twenty years it's. It's moved off to the periphery of, of the paranormal, if you will. Uh, you know, give us a thumbnail of who was Amelia Earhart and what happened and how massive a star she was. Because a lot of people don't recall, you know, they don't know that, if you will. They don't realize that she was this international celebrity who disappeared. It wasn't just uh, an airline pilot. Um, so I guess tell the story of Amelia Earhart, and, and which culminated in her disappearance, and then we'll get into the theories behind what became of her. Okay, Amelia Earhart was in her days, in the 1930s, was the most famous woman in the world. Uh, she was uh, an aviator who was completely fearless, and she set uh, world records wherever she flew her airplane. 
uh, her most notable accomplishment was flying solo across the Atlantic uh, uh, in the footsteps of Charles Lindbergh. She was the first woman to file to fly solo across the Atlantic and the first woman to fly even as a passenger across the Atlantic in the flight of the flight of the friendship. She was given awards and accolades from all the heads of the European states and from the United States she was given medals and, and National Geographic awards. Uh, she was quite the headline in her day. Hmm. And when uh, when she disappeared at Howland Island, uh, it was quite a letdown, but nonetheless, uh, she is gone, and there is no way we can bring her back. <laughs> if she was living today, she would be over 100 years old, so it was just a question of time, but uh, it was really a tremendous loss, and she was uh, probably the most famous of all the women pilots that ever flew in the skies and, and set world records from uh, Hawaii to uh, Oakland, California, from Mexico City nonstop to uh, New Jersey, uh, nonstop across the Atlantic. Just those amazing, three, yeah. Right. Those were the three most impressive. And uh, she was married to... George Putnam, who was the publisher of G.P. Putnam and Sons, book publishers. <laughs> so he was quite a pub publicist. I'm not sure if I can pronounce that correctly. That you got it, Pub you got it. Uh, yeah, publicist. And he, uh, of course, supported her in all of her adventures. However, the, uh, the most expensive flight that she undertook was the world flight around the world. Right, right. Which ended in disaster at Howland Island. Right. That's the that sort of was the culmination of her various exploits was to do the around the world flight. Which uh, now at that time had you know it's 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 almost a completely different. It is a completely different world. Uh, you know, people fly around the world all the time. The satellites go around the Earth <laughs> in about fifteen minutes. So it's almost impossible to conceive of how perilous and difficult this journey was. Correct. I mean, how many people had even flown around the world uh, before she tried it? Well, flying around the world at the equator was quite a problem because that was the widest part of the globe. Uh, so the journey uh, uh, took like uh, two months just to get to Howland Island. Uh, well, she never arrived at Howland Island. She to get to Lay, New Guinea, mm. and. Uh, Flying 150 miles an hour with layovers and maintenance on the airplane and fuel problems, all of that was uh, very time-consuming back in the days of 1937. How did that sort of thing work uh, if you were flying around? Clearly, it wasn't in one continuous. Would she would just land and refuel and then go back up again, or would she stop for a couple of weeks or a day or a month or something? I mean, how you know to fix the plane or like how how did, what's the logistics of that sort of uh, journey? Uh, well, uh, first of all, she started leaving the United States from Miami, Florida. She flew south down to South America. Uh, south America, the stays there were mostly overnight. In some cases, she stayed one or two days. And she was entertained at almost every stop. 
by the royalty, uh, well, I say royalty, by the dignitaries of uh, the cities where she stopped at, and they, she was invited out to dinner, and she was out to lunch, and, and the rest of the time she spent while they were working on the airplane. And those engines that she had on the, on that airplane, 550 horsepower Pratt and West Pratt and Whitney Wasp engines, required a lot of maintenance. And I don't know why that was, but uh, you see, 1937 was a little bit before my time. But that was in the days when aircraft engines, when aircraft engines were not that dependable. And they did require, uh, constant overhaul and constant maintenance and vast quantities of oil they consumed in addition to the gasoline. And there was even a problem of getting the gasoline to the stopover locations because it had to be, uh, carted in by truck, uh, in 50-gallon uh, barrels, by the barrel. Oh, God. And, yeah. Sounds pretty, yeah. So how far into the journey was she when she disappeared? Was it, you know, two-thirds, a quarter of the way? How, you know, how, how close was she to, to finishing up the, the, the trip? Oh, I would say she was 90% finished. When she was in Ley, New Guinea, which is just north of Australia, the next leg of the flight was from Ley to Howland Island, and that was considered the most dangerous part of the flight because the island was so small. But uh, you have to realize she was a major in the Army Air Corps and uh, actually uh, acting under orders uh, from FDR and the Defense Department. They wanted to, to establish a route through the Pacific using Howland Island as a stopover and refueling point. So that was the purpose of using Howland. And it was a distance of about 2,500 miles, statute miles, or about 2,200 miles nautical miles. And the flying time was about 20 hours, which she... Uh, they used something like 1,100 gallons of of gasoline, I believe it was 80 octane, 80, 87 octane, and there, however, she did have, uh, I believe there was about uh, 25 or 30 gallons of 100 octane on board when they left Ley, New Guinea. It was the most uh, awkward part of the flight, and the flight where she made the grave mistake of not taking a radio operator a qualified radio operator on board the airplane, and that was the big problem with the loss of, of Amelia Earhart at Howland Island. How so? How do you she, mean? Uh, what well, do you mean by she that? did not. Amelia Earhart did not understand the radio systems. She did not understand Morse code, and from what I found out from Fred Gurner's files in Fredericksburg. She got all kinds of wrong information from her radio repairman. Right. This is the new revelation that you told me about uh, just yeah. now earlier here uh, that that you you said to me in an email that you that you blame this Gurr character for for her you know for her disappearance in a sense for 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 the for the mission not going as planned. Right. That's right. Her repairman was Joseph Gurr. That's spelled G-U-R, and I, I, I call him Joseph Gurr with all more R's on the end. <laughs> he told 
Amelia Earhart and preached to her that she could take direction-finding bearings on any frequency she wanted on her radio system, and it was completely in error. I mean, it was the absolutely the wrong thing that anyone could have told Amelia Earhart because the system she had for direction-finding, that was a loop antenna system over the cabin of the airplane, would only work on low frequency. In this case, it was 500 kilocycles. And 500 kilocycles only functioned on Morse code. It was a Morse code station for ship-to-ship -ship communications and emergency communications between airplanes. She didn't understand uh, Morse code. She couldn't read or send Morse code. And that may have been one reason why she objected to using it. But the big problem was that this Joseph Gurr told her that he had fixed her radios so that she could direction fine with a loop antenna on high frequency, which is what she tried to do. She went to 3105 kilocycles. 6210 kilocycles and 7500 kilocycles. That's way up the scale into high frequency. And she cannot take a bearing on high frequency with the radio equipment she had. It would not work. A loop antenna works on low frequency only. And it was really tragic because the solution to what happened there was so simple. All she had to do was switch her receiver over to low frequency, 500 kilocycles, and listen to the A's. A's are dip da, dip da. Mm -hmm. The Atasco, which was the Coast Guard cutter that was on station, who was um, giving her a beam, a radio contact, was sending A's on low frequency Morse code on 500 kilocycles. That's way down the scale. Yeah. And if she would have picked up those A's and used her loop antenna, she could have gotten a bearing right into the Itasca and Howland Island. That was the really tragic part of the whole thing. It just completely uncalled for. Now, what do you completely. what do you think the reasoning was with this? Is this guy just mistaken? I mean, he didn't purposely he, mislead her, I presume. Well, I don't think he did it purposely. I, I think the guy must have been a little bit screwy because just uh, Fred Gurner taped an interview with her. Uh, no, uh, Fred Gurner taped an interview with with Joseph Gurr, mm -hmm. and in the interview. He makes this statement that he brags about he fixed the radios so she could direction find on all the frequencies. He never once realized that she could not direction find on low frequency with an RA1 radio system, which is what she had. And this is something that he couldn't fathom. He couldn't understand it. But And, and uh, it was amazing because on the interview... And the information that I got out of the files, Fred Gurner was the one, the radio reporter who was doing the interview, was the one who had to tell Joseph Gurr, the guy who's supposed to know so much about radio radios, that you cannot direction find a low frequency with a loop antenna. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. And what did Gurr say in the interview then? What, what was his response to that? He didn't believe him? His response was, oh, no. You mean you can't do that? That was his response was, oh, no. Oh, isn't that on? I, for the life of me, I couldn't understand what got into this guy. That's just weird. Telling her things like that. That's just weird. Mm. Oh, God. Um, okay, so she's 90% done with the flight. She's en route to Holland Island. And so how does the, you know, it's almost impossible to really say how the disappearance happens, but, you know, take us through sort of those last final moments uh, as much as we actually know you know, what happened? Well, um, as she left Lane, New Guinea, she was in contact uh, for about five or six hours, some say eight hours, with Lay, almost in the vicinity of Nauru Island, which was uh, pretty close to the halfway point to Howland. And uh, she was broadcasting on 6210. Uh, the, the two aviation frequencies in high frequency were uh, 3105 and 6210. One is the double of the other. They're called harmonic frequencies. And those were the two aviation frequencies of the day. And what happened was uh, that she was re- she did not have the trailing antenna on the airplane. She took it off. And you cannot, uh, over long distances, over open, open, over open water, expect to communicate without that trailing antenna, which is like 250 feet long. Oh, wow. And it had a lead ball on the end. And when flying through the air, it was C-shaped. It would be almost, not vertical, but uh, close to, uh, a C-shape flying through the air. So you can imagine the the, the length of uh, that's the the equivalent of a 20-story building, 250 feet. That's what it took to communicate long distances over open water. Oh my God! What a difference the world is now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Okay. And, and and this was 1937. Yeah. And the only thing she had to work with was uh the v antenna over the uh the, the dorsal v over the cabin the antenna over the cabin and another there was another v antenna on the fuselage below the cabin which uh for the life of me I, I can't understand the radio people I've talked to can't understand why that thing was there but it was supposed to increase the range the truth of the matter is it didn't and However, when she was talking back to Lay, New Guinea, it was on 6210. And 6210 is a higher frequency, and higher frequencies require shorter antennas. How about that? So hmm. 6210 would carry back to Lay, New Guinea at the halfway point. But when she, at, uh, at the halfway point, uh, darkness fell and she switched to the nighttime frequency of 3105. And 3105, it was imperative to have that trailing antenna. And she didn't have it. And Joseph Gurr told her that he fixed the radios so she didn't have to have a trailing antenna. How about that for size? Oh my god. This so, guy. 
<laughs> yeah, he really fixed things. He sure, yeah. <laughs> so he tells her that that, that he modified uh, the radio system. Uh, there was a coil. It's called a loading co- loading coil inside the radio system that is necessary to broadcast and receive on low frequency and high frequency on vacuum tube radios. And uh, the radios in those days were all operated on on uh, high-powered voltage uh, on high frequency and low frequency. They, uh, in order to run the vacuum tubes, it required high voltage. The problem with the frequencies was that when he put in this, he made a homemade loading coil and he wrapped extra wire around the loading coil. In other words, uh, then he put this this homemade loading coil back into the radio system and the idea was that it was supposed to trick the radios into thinking that there was a 250, uh, 250 foot antenna trailing out the back of the plane. It right. was supposed to be a trick for the radios. The the only trouble is it didn't trick the radios. It didn't work. And what it did was it made the antennas extremely sensitive. Just the slightest movement in the antennas would throw them out of sequence and out of resonance, and you couldn't tell what she was saying. Yeah. How about that? Pretty wild stuff. I mean, it's amazing that she was... It's I, I, You know, like I said, it's a whole different world back then, but it's amazing that she's relying on some guy who's putting homemade crap in her plane to fly across the world. It's like when you, I guess that's the, I guess he was really, uh, you know, as, as professional as she could find maybe. I don't know. I don't understand that. You know, why wasn't the, why wasn't the, why wasn't the Air Force helping out with this or, or, you know, it just doesn't seem to add up that, that this remarkably unreliable and uninformed person was, uh, putting the pieces together on the plane. Yeah, well, she turned down help from Pan American World Airways, who flew those routes across the Pacific on a daily basis. Uh, she turned down help from the Navy, from the Army, from everyone. The only oh, one weird. she listened to was this, Joe, was this uh, Joseph Gurr. She <laughs> was the one who sold her the bill of goods. She could do anything she wanted to, and she didn't have to have the trailing antenna. And it, she paid she paid dearly for that price. Absolutely. And anyway, at the halfway point, darkness began to fall, and she switched from 6210 daytime frequency to 3105, which was the nighttime frequency. And 3105 requires a longer antenna than 6210, and because of the shortness of the antenna, the V antenna over the fuselage, there was very little contact between herself and uh, the Tasca station offshore in Howland Island, and it was uh, uh, as she flew in, uh, the radio operators on the Tasca were uh, completely. Uh, baffled by her cutting in and cutting out and disappearing off the airways on 3105, you see. Mm-hmm. And that was super sensitive frequency that did require long antennas. And they could not take a bearing on her. 
and she could not take a bearing on them. Uh, she uh, thought that the Atasca could take could direction find on high frequency, and she is sending whistling in the mic and uh, uh, talking and broadcasting on 7,500 kilocycles. That's even higher than 6,210. Yeah. So we're getting all this cross communication between her and the, and the Itasca, no. and she can't see. She so at this point doesn't. She, well, how, what's going on with the navigation instruments, though? I mean, does she really need to? Why does she need to talk to people out there? Can, is is there a problem here with the navigation too? Oh yeah, definitely. The uh, Fred Noonan, her navigator, could shoot the stars late at night. Uh, and they were pretty muchly on course. In fact, uh, if you plot it on the charts, you're going to see a direct line between Lay New Guinea and Howland Island. And the 20th hour, actually, uh, earlier than that, the 18th hour, she, they started picking up her broadcast at, on the Itasca, which meant that she flew a direct line. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the flying time and the distance covered uh, wouldn't allow for any side trips. Uh, no, no spying activities uh, in the Marshall Islands. No, no uh, uh, diversions, uh, say, to the island of Truk for spying activities or taking pictures. It just simply wasn't possible because uh, the plane would have had to fly 400 miles an hour, 500 miles an hour to do that and keep the time schedule that she kept. Uh, the plane would cruise at 150 miles an hour and 130 miles an hour, 130 nautical miles per hour. Uh, most of the quotations you're going to see on distance and flying time and airspeed are in knots, yeah. nautical miles per hour. There wasn't any question that she flew on a direct line, but when the sun came up, uh, as they passed the Gilbert Islands on the way into Howland, Fred Noonan would have been able to shoot the sun. So he had one bearing. And the one bearing he had was on the sun, which gave him longitude, in other words, distance east and west. Right. So he would know how far out they were, but the problem is that the, uh, he didn't have latitude, he didn't have the second bearing, and it requires two bearings to establish a fix. He didn't have the second bearing, which would have given him latitude. <laughs> so they're, they're... This is such a complicated... Uh, you want me to go into the more details? I can tell you more details about this. I go there for it. I mean, I, I, let me let me sort of keep let me sort of make sure that I'm keeping pace with you, though. Um, okay. So their communication's completely out of whack. They went through the night, and now it's daytime, and they're still flying. Okay. And they're trying to figure out how to get to this Holland Island, and and because it's daytime now, they have no means of navigation. Well, sure. It was eight o'clock in the morning, and she was in the in daytime, and she was in the vicinity of Howland Island, but she was caught under a cloud formation to the north and west of Howland, and she couldn't find the Atasca. Uh, one of the problems she had was that loop antenna, and there was at that time 
Fran Hooven uh, with Bendix uh, Electronics, Bendix Radio, who uh, had invented the automatic direction finder for low frequency. Mm-hmm. And he put that on her airplane. And she decided she didn't like it. But the truth of the matter is, she, uh, well, she wanted the loop antenna because she thought that, well, that was the old established method, you know, and uh, foolproof. She was afraid, afraid of newfangled ideas, evidently. But if she would have had Fred Hooven's automatic direction finder, it could have saved her life because that direction finder would have given her a bearing on Jalowet Radio in the Marshall Islands. It would point, uh, and it, not only that, but it was valid through uh, static. It was valid through, uh, you didn't have to have a high volume reception. It would pick up the radio station even on low volume, and it would automatically point directly to the station. See, one of the problems with the loop antenna was you would get the, you would rotate the loop to find the null, the low point, the low point in the broadcast, and that would be pointing to the station. But there's another question, was it pointing to the station or away from the station? Was it to or from the station? You couldn't tell. Yeah. See, See so, it's a lot of, it sounds like there's a lot of technical problems here with this, with this, uh, right. with this. And the automatic the direction flight. finder solved that problem. And the, uh, Fred Noonan could have st- established the, the latitude of the airplane with an ADF, an automatic direction finder, but she took it off. She took it off, she took the whole system off the airplane and discarded it. Why would she do I, that? I, I, you're asking me, well, it's the same reason she took off the, the trailing antenna, she just decided she didn't like it. Oh, my Which, goodness. Yeah, I'm not so sure I would have gotten in that. I would have flown in that airplane with Amelia Earhart. Yeah, <laughs> I would have taken the bus. I would have taken the bus, I'll say. She, <laughs> she really had no idea of the danger she was facing. Okay, so let's sort of uh, let's let's move a little bit away here from the technical aspect of all this because I can hear folks, uh, I, can, I can hear their eyelids drooping. So, at what point do they know that she's gone? You know, at what point is it like, oh no, she's you know she hasn't arrived yet? Is that kind of how they knew she was missing? Well, um, she uh, the twentieth hour uh, was eight o'clock in the morning Howland time. Uh, on the Itasca was the time when she should have been uh, over the Itasca and landing at Howland Island. And they waited until 12 o'clock that day before they declared her missing because that was the time when they knew that she had exhausted her fuel supply. They uh, instantly, uh, when the search terminated, the uh, uh, Thompson of the Itasca took off in the direction of those clouds. And the thing of it is, she was down to 1,000 feet, which is a terrible, when she called in the last few times to the Atasca, which is a terrible altitude to be flying over open water. Yeah. It's not a, and she was forced down by the cloud formations to the north and west of the Atasca. They were convinced of that. And that's the direction they took. And uh, it was uh, 
Oh, I was going to say, undoubtedly, the, most of the calculations I've seen, and they're in the book, Lost Flight, Roland Rennick did a good job calculating the time she had on that flying, flying time she had on the airplane was in the vicinity of Howland Island. She had at least four and maybe five hours of flying time left on the airplane. And when she called in, she said she was low on fuel. And uh, one of the radio operators accidentally wrote it down as only 30 minutes of gas left, which was completely an error. And the, the chief radio man, Leo Bellart, uh, on the Atasca, said it was an error. And uh, what she said was she was low on fuel, and at that point... Uh, another four hours elapsed uh, from 8 o'clock in the morning till 12 o'clock, and they decided at that point she was out of fuel, and they declared her missing. So they actually, it sounds like they didn't really go, they waited too long to go looking for her, is what you're intimating here, well, or suggesting. Well, uh, as it turned out, it really didn't make that much difference. Ah, because ultimately, because of what you think ultimately happened, right, is what you're saying. Yeah, ultimately, uh... Uh, I think uh, the radios uh, in those days used the power of those vacuum tubes, used what's called a dynamotor, dynamotor, D-Y-N-A motor, dynamotor, to boost the voltage off the, 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 um, the generator and battery system to go into the radios to, to power up the vacuum tubes. And they had a lot of trouble with dynamotors. They would heat up, and some of them even caught on fire, and they could explode. And that's what I think happened. That's the only way we can explain it, really, that uh, Amelia Earhart went completely off the airways, went blank for a period of about three or maybe four hours. Uh, no, I'd say three hours after uh, she was last heard in the vicinity of the Atasca Howland Island. Later the same day, there was a broadcast that was picked up by Nauru. That was Nauru Island. That was the halfway point where Earhart came on the airways uh, with the transcription. She said, land ahead. Hmm. And... And, uh, which would put her in the vicinity of the Marshall Islands. Uh, uh, undoubtedly, the Marshall Islands. But she didn't know if it was the Marshall Islands or the Gilbert Islands. Right, right. But they were close enough, right. Uh, you see, uh, when Earhart was flying in, uh, to Howland, she passed over the Gilbert Islands. And these were chains of islands, and you're up at seven or 8,000 feet. And the people who've flown that altitude in those areas have told me that the, the islands, the Gilbert Islands, will show up as a chain of uh, an archipelago, a chain of islands. Yeah. And you can see them from one island to the next. And uh with that much knowledge and and uh they probably headed back to the Gilbert Islands they thought they they didn't realize how far north they were yeah but and there's a reason for their being north 
uh, they headed back for the New Gilbert Islands um, with the sun at their back. And that's another factor. See, when they were trying to find Howland and the Itasca, the sun was coming up right over the horizon and shining right in their face, and they had the visibility was cut down to practically nothing, zero. From the bright sun, a shining tropical sun at 1,000 feet, shining right in your face, and you're trying to find islands on the uh, surface of the ocean that look like dark spots from clouds. Not an easy task, not, not at all. Not an easy task, so no. she, So they, they look for her, they can't find her. And then they just pretty much, how long did it go on? You know, at what point did we reach the point kind of where we're at today, where it's the, I wouldn't say the generally overall accepted belief that she crashed and sank, but it seems to be that's the one that the mainstream has fairly uh, rested its laurels on. Yeah, well, what we're trying to do with Lost Flight is introduce the Marshall Islands where we believe she crashed, and uh, uh, downplay this crash and sank and sank theory. Right, right. But that's the one that, because the, that they just we have we have proof uh, just from the the land ahead message that three hours after uh, Earhart uh, had left the Howland Island Howland area, the airplane was still flying. It was still flying. And later that night, uh, there was another message that came in from the radio operator at Nauru Island where he picked up a broadcast, uh, uh, an Amelia Earhart broadcast, uh, that sounded like, uh, uh, the radio was out of tune or she was uh, holding the, the microphone too close to her lips and it was made a screeching noise. And But he recognized the voice as being Amelia Earhart. Now, how could that be possible if they were low on fuel? You mean like the plane would have been landed or crashed at that point, but they would have had access to the radio? Cause, uh, it crashed on an island okay. somewhere out there in the Pacific. And the island was Millie Atoll, was Millie Atoll. And I think we have proof of that now. Okay. okay. So let's, okay, so we've kind of, we've, we've taken a while here, but we've, we've set the stage for the big disappearance and, and how it all went down. Now, you're pretty much saying that obviously you don't believe in the crashed, excuse me, the crashed and sank theory, especially because after all these years, we've never it would presumably we never turned up any sign of the of the plane, you know, in the ocean or anywhere like that. Nothing ever came uh, of it. That, that's true, but uh, that that's coming to an end because we think we have an inspection plate off the airplane from Millie Atoll. Right, right. I'm still. I'm just. I can send you a picture of it. <laughs> <laughs> Please do send me the picture. I'll I'll, I'll post it here on, on the website. Um, so then, it, it, essentially, the main they, they said essentially that it crashed and sank. There was no real like. You know, it didn't really carry on from there, other than sort of the undercurrent discussion of what else could have happened beyond that, and that's where you come in as far as your as your perspective. Let's let's knock out some of the other ones. I guess let's let's sort of like knock out some of these other theories. Uh, the the crash and sank one is the obvious one that that you're saying you just don't think it happened, especially because she was on the radio a couple times afterwards. How come? 
uh, are these disputed radio signals, or I mean, how come these aren't part of the overall narrative that you know the average person on the street knows? Well, the problem is they've never been publicized. Uh, the people who know about these things, such as myself and uh, the members of Lost Light Group, which I work group of researchers, which I work with, have never really publicized this. And we're attempting to publicize uh, the messages from uh, Nauru Island, the lost, the, the land ahead message, and and uh, uh, the the last uh, the muffled one. Uh, the, yeah, the muffled one uh, that followed later that night. And uh, after the airplane crashed, the antennas had moved enough that they were completely out of resonance. Uh, and uh, the radio people call it resonance. Well, what they're saying is uh, you can't distinguish what the voice is saying over the telephone because her transmissions were all in voice, with the exception of one transmission that Fred, Gerner, uh, Fred uh, uh, Noonan sent. Uh, they were all in voice. And uh, uh, there was... Um, uh, a Navy captain, Almond Gray. Uh, the, the, the thing of it is that the transmissions didn't stop with just the, the, the uh, two transmissions that were picked up by uh, Nauru Island. There were transmissions that were picked up by Pan Am radio operators at Guam, at Midway, and at Honolulu. And they all heard the same screeching noise over the airways that uh, they believe, uh, if you follow, they came from the eastern side of the Marshall Islands and then went down further south towards Gardner. Of course, uh, everybody says, well, she went to Gardner. No, she didn't go to Gardner. Why, why would she try another isolated island like that when she couldn't find the one she was at? Right. With the sun in her face, it doesn't make any sense. Now, okay, so we've we've dismissed the crash and sank, and and we're we're talking about here these after after radio signals. Now you're you're touching on the Gardner Island. That's the big, that's sort of the big uh, red herring, or that's the big sort of, um, I guess you could say, last grasp, or that's the big hope for a lot of people in the Amelia Earhart research community. You're talking about this, especially this Tiger group. Uh, they seem convinced that she crashed and survived on Gardner Island. So I guess talk about that theory, and, and you've already touched on why you don't think it's it's accurate, but, you know, extrapolate a little more on that and, and why, you know, why are they so convinced? If you're sure that that isn't what happened, why are they so sure that it is? Well, that's how he makes his living, basically. His name is Gillespie, Rip Gillespie. None of the findings that he has found, none of them, absolutely none of them, have ever been traced to Amelia Earhart. And the place was populated and trampled down by uh, uh, um, radio sites during World War II and and uh, uh, explorers have been there, uh, uh, natives have been there, all the junk they left laying around. In World War II, was, uh, Howland Island was an active military installation. So you can just imagine the debris they left behind. You mean so Gardner was, Island? Uh, you got Gardner Island, right. It was, a, it was a military island. They were using it as a, as a radio base. And uh, 
honestly, um, I had, uh, they were using it, there's been so much traffic there that uh, anything they found, uh, anything that uh, the Tiger group has found, has, they can't trace it down, they can't uh, trace down the bones, they can't trace down uh, the, the sextant, and not only that, but uh, it was a naval sextant. They didn't even find they didn't find the sextant. All they found was a box that looked like it, it contained a naval sextant. Well, the naval the box for the naval sextant probably came uh, from the wreck of the Norwich City on Garwin Island. Uh, there's so many uh, ifs and buts. I mean, more recently. Uh, uh, he said he had a picture of what he thought was the landing gear uh, uh, sticking up out of the water on the reefs off Gardner Island. And uh, the only trouble is, uh, this was in 1939, uh, something like that, that picture was taken. And whatever it was, it isn't there now. And there is no way of proving that it ever came off the, off the Earhart airplane. And uh, which makes the type of evidence he likes to fool around with because he doesn't have to prove it did come from <laughs> from the Earhart airplane. And, uh, and then he finds uh, wrinkle cream and freckle cream in a jar that that uh, could have contained uh, Uncle Joe's freckle freckle cream and whatever it was. And and the jar they found was clear glass. And he puts up, uh, uh, Amelia Earhart had freckles, and she puts up on his website a picture of a freckle cream glass, and it's opaque. So what, I don't understand what goes on with him. I mean, they could have been, those jars could have been used for anything. Yeah. And, uh, none of, uh, his, that's on our website, by the way, uh, the truth about, uh, Gardner Island, that uh, Amelia Earhart, Book.com, www.lostflight.net. All of that is on the website. It's all been disproved. None of it has ever made any sense. Hmm. Interesting. Because all you ever see, it's, it's, now we're going to get to your theory now in a moment because I find it not only the most fascinating, but also the most just really jaw dropping and intriguing. And it's certainly not, one that hasn't been put out there before. It's it's been around for a while, but you really dug into it. But it, it's disappointing to hear you say this this stuff about the Gardner Island thing because, and I'm sure it probably makes you want to just pull your hair out because every news story I see on Amelia Earhart nowadays, which is scant in and of itself, is about this Gardner Island theory and how they're they're looking at Gardner Island all the time. And I'm always hearing sort of these tantalizing little bits of possible stuff found at Gardner Island and you're just saying forget all that that's not it's not adding up well just to give you an idea of how desperate they are for evidence they went around picking up uh, dried up feces off the beach thinking it was Amelia Earhart's oh god can you imagine that what 75 year old poop 75 year old poop (laughs) unbelievable (laughs) oh my god sitting there on a on an island and the wind and the rain and, and the storms and the hurricanes and and uh, and he thinks it's uh, belongs huh, probably some dog or something. Oh goodness, it's that's unbelievable! Weird. Unbelievable. Okay, so 
your thoughts here on all this is that she ended up in the Marshall Islands, Millie Atoll, uh, Roy Namur, I'm sure I mispronounced that. And oh, no, Roy Namur, that's it. Oh, Roy great. Namur, okay, Marshall Islands. Let me just set you up here so uh, so you can, I, can, I can wind you up and let you go. And that they, they crashed on at the Marshall Islands and then subsequently fell into the hands of the Japanese. That's that's Turned sort of the, the the that's the that's the theory that you're you're putting forward here. And as I said, this isn't some new you you know, you didn't come up with this on your own. I mean, wh- how long have people been suggesting that idea that she was captured by the Japanese? Cuz I remember hearing it a while ago. Well, um I can't really say when it started. It's probably just always uh, been around. Yeah, I think Fred Gurner may be the one who really started it. There has been uh, books written. Randall Brink uh, has a book. There's been several books written about the Marshall Islands, but they never have really gotten the publicity. And I think this much, that we've, with uh, the inspection plate that we found in the Marshalls, in the interviews that Dick Spink did in the Marshalls, I think it's going to convince a lot of people because we can put that on television. Mm. So for, for the first time, and the newspapers, we can do a press release on that on the newspapers in addition to television. And uh, I think it will get the publicity it deserves. Because it completely nullifies Gardner Island. Garden, Gardner Island is uh, just uh, a sad state of affairs. Now, of course, I uh, have to admit that uh, Gillespie and the Tiger Group in particular have done a lot of work on their research, and, and they spent a lot of time on it, but it is pointless. It, it doesn't lead anywhere, and no one has ever stated any at any time that... Uh, that this came from Amelia Earhart. The DNA evidence they tried to track down with the uh, you know, feces and all the rest of it, it it's all just uh, so much hype. Hot yeah. air, that's all it is. Yeah. So what makes you... But they got the publicity. They got the publicity. That's the whole point. So. Exactly. That's that's the... Uh, for some folks, that's all that matters. Um, take us through... What you've got here as far as evidence and uh, speculation and, and whatnot and witness testimony that strengthens this case that they crashed in the Marshall Islands and then were captured by the Japanese. Okay, well, there is uh, the, the stories from the Marshall Islands is that there was a fisherman at Milietol who was out fishing one day in 1937, and he looked up and an airplane came circling overhead and crashed on one of the reefs. And uh, when Dick Spink was there, he tried to interview the man, but uh, he was uh, on vacation or something. I don't know what happened. He couldn't couldn't get his interview, but he got the interviews uh, from... uh, a lot of the notables from the Marshall Islands, for instance, the senator, uh, the president of the Marshall Islands, uh, who I, I can't recall, uh, a king of uh, King Amata of the Marshall Islands, and the, it's not much of a secret in the Marshall Islands uh, if you talk to. Uh, the people who lived there. Yeah. That Amelia Earhart crashed on Millie Atoll, 
And in the film that Dick shot, he shot the actual landing spot where they were told. Uh, <laughs> they told where the airplane crashed. And from there, they were taken prisoners by the Japanese. And Japanese in 1937 were in a war, were, had their bayonets on the ends of their rifles. <clears throat> it was really a war scenario is what it was. Now, that confused me a little bit because uh, this was 1937. It's four years before Pearl Harbor. She's an international celebrity. I mean, I, I'm just surprised that, that they would take her uh, and, and imprison her and it wouldn't get out at all at the time. I guess, she obviously, is, well, I'm thinking of a world with, uh, you know, 24-7 media and Twitter and all that. That some, <laughs> I'm expecting a guard to tweet that they captured her. But, you know, it, it's it's... It's amazing to me, I guess you could say, that here they are. They're not at war with the United States yet. They're four years away from that. Yet they still uh, believe that Amelia Earhart and Noonan, uh, Fred Noonan, were spies, and then they, they take them into cap- captivity? That's right, captivity uh, from the Marshall Islands. They believe they were taken to the islands of Roy Namur. From Roy Namur, they were flown by seaplane to... Uh, Saipan, where they were imprisoned and they were executed. <clears throat> and in the uh, film that Dick Spink, uh, Dick Spink ran, they got pictures of Millie Atoll from the air, which are very good. And the condition of the toll, he says that when the airplane crashed, the toll was so rough with the coral sticking up, and you see pictures of it that it uh, not only caved in the left wheel, but it tore the left wing off the airplane. And this is where the inspection plate came from, we believe. And uh, we're in the process now of proving that inspection plate came off an an L-10, a Lockheed Electra Model 10E. That's what we're attempting to prove right now. We have to find, uh, well, we know where the 10Es are, and we're... uh, trying to get pictures of that inspection plate now would the, the would the inspection plate does it contain any sort of uh signature red paint in, what's yeah. that red paint well i guess i was going to say does it contain any absolute sort of signature maybe a serial number i don't you know i don't even know oh, what no. an inspection plate is but i'm just saying is it something that that you can categorically take and say this was absolutely on the plane because it has this number on it or anything like that, or is it, or, or, or are we going to run into skeptics who are going to dismiss it as something that you found at a junkyard or something? Uh, oh no, this this is something that uh, would be only off an airplane. Uh, the red paint would have to be. You see, the leading edges of the wing and the tail section were painted with red paint. And the inspection plate has red paint on it. Mm-hmm. We know it's the correct uh, type of aluminum that was used in World War II uh, by Lockheed. We know that much. And all we need now, really, is pictures of the inspection plate on the airplane. Right. So this isn't and this isn't some. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that would probably be the the tie down factor. Yeah. I'll send you pictures of the inspection plate. Yes, send me, send me the pictures, absolutely. I guess what I'm saying is this isn't something that I could go on eBay and get or, you know, <laughs> you know, a plain aficionado wouldn't be able to get his hands on for me or something like that, right? I mean, and, and it was found in, it was found at the Marshall Islands? 
Oh, yes, it was found on Meliotol. The plate is about four inches long and about two inches wide, or two and a half inches wide. And how did they find it? Was it did someone have it as a memento of some kind? Or? No, it was laying on the ground. It was laying in a debris field with aluminum. With aluminum scattered around. I, I told Dick that he should have picked up the aluminum that was scattered around the plate. See, when they tore the airplane... When the wing was torn off the airplane, it might have torn off the inspection plate at the same time, and nobody paid any attention to it. It's been laying there all those years. It looks like a piece of metal, aluminum, with some red paint on one end that uh, has been laying out in the weather and the wind and the rain for 76 years. That's what it looks like. So you're saying there was still a debris field from the crash? even after all these years? Well, he did find more debris. He found a, a door latch mechanism. Uh, that, uh, his uh, maintenance, the maintenance man he, he knows in uh, Washington, he's from Bow, Washington, said that those were parts off an airplane, off an aircraft door, hmm. off the door of an airplane. So we've as, as soon as we get this tracked down as to the plate, the next thing we want to track down is the parts from the door that came off an airplane. He did find that, and he also found uh, an upholstery button lying on the uh, ground. But I don't have much faith in that, but the door parts sound, that sounds doable. Yeah, that sounds like something that could really help. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. The early morning of July 2nd, 1937. Amelia Earhart and her navigator are bound westward over the lonely mid-Pacific. It is the final leg of a grueling, round-the-world flight. Within several hours, they will disappear. Now, on the website here, on AmeliaEarhartMovie.com, uh, you talk about the various theories. And for, and for the Japanese capture, which is the one we're going to focus on here, you say that there are a multitude of eyewitness accounts. So tell us about these eyewitness accounts. Uh, regarding on the Japanese capture, yes, yes. Oh my! Because, well, yeah, you say there's a multitude, uh, you know, and uh, that's interesting because well, that would be Saipan. Mm-hmm. The Garapan oh, prison. Goodness, you, you, yeah, you've got me pinned down here for lack of names. It's okay. There, you don't need there to. There was quite name a few people. stories that came out of Saipan. In fact, one of the uh, in the interview that Dick Spink did on the Marshall Islands, uh, I. Believe it was the senator uh, mentions that his he has a cousin who lives on the island of Saipan, and he verified the same story that she was taken to Saipan. Uh, there was, uh, I'd say, uh, about maybe a dozen or so people. Uh, I would have to pull out the books to call off names uh, that believe yeah, they saw Amelia Earhart on Saipan. At the prison. At the prison, right. So, like you said, it, 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 this is a this is something that's fairly 
I wouldn't say well-known, but it's on the Marshall Islands. It's, uh, I guess you could say, accepted that that's what happened to her? It's fairly well accepted, yes. It, and, however, you still have to talk to the right people. If you don't, you someone who uh, is a newcomer or, or wasn't around when the, these events happened wouldn't know about them. But Right, right. Uh, if you talk to the right people, you're going to hear quite a few stories about Amelia Earhart. Now, compare that to Gardner Island, where nobody saw anything, nobody knows anything, no one has ever seen anything, and nothing ever happened there as far as even the natives are concerned. That's another thing about Gardner Island. Uh, the natives there were very friendly, and uh, there's a good reason to, to suspect they could have survived long enough for one of the natives that lived on the surrounding islands to find them and give them help. And that didn't happen. Nothing happened. No one ever found anything uh, or helped them or saw anything on Gardner Island. It's just a complete blank. Now, here's a sort of okay. off Not the... to change the subject. Okay. Go ahead. No, here's a sort of off the beaten path uh, question, and that is, has anyone... I guess, let me put it this way. Do you think that the government knew that the Japanese captured Amelia Earhart and just yes. tried to sweep it under the rug? Yes, Definitely. Why? Just because they didn't want to inflame well, the situation uh, uh, before the war, you know, before, because obviously, like I said, this is 1937, it's four years before Pearl Harbor. Maybe they didn't want to rock the boat with Japan and be like, you know, give us Amelia Earhart back, man, don't, you know, don't do that. Yeah, well, uh, there was, um, uh, cons there's considerable evidence that, uh, Roosevelt, in particular, knew that Earhart had fallen into the hands of the Japanese. And you have to realize that in 1937, they were at the stages of breaking the Japanese codes, and they knew what had happened. And uh, shortly after she disappeared, uh, he sent his good friend, um, Vincent Astor, that's uh, the Astor estate from New York. It was became a spy for Franklin Roosevelt, mm -hmm. and he had a, a pleasure yacht that they used to ride around on. Uh, that Roosevelt really loved, by the way. Roosevelt talked him into taking a cruise to the Marshall Islands to see if he could find anything about Amelia Earhart. So how what what brought that on? Well, the only conclusion we can make is that uh Roosevelt knew that Amelia Earhart had been captured by the Japanese and he was trying to find her. Right. And he asked Vincent asked her to take this cruise and on this cruise he wrote a letter back to Roosevelt. It's in the book, it's in the Lost Light in the last chapter where he describes what everything that was going on in the Marshall Islands and the Japanese wouldn't even let the boat land. They chased him off and he had to get up and turn around and go back. Huh. He had to leave. But uh, Roosevelt tried to send one of his best friends into the Marshall Islands looking for Amelia Earhart. And so you're asking me, did the government know that Amelia Earhart was down and was captured by the Japanese? The answer is yes, she did. He did know. Huh. 
Now, I, why? They I, did. Oh, they, they did know. Got the pronoun right. <laughs> there you go. Okay, go ahead. Um, I guess why do you think then, if it, if it was known by the U.S. government, and clearly it was known by the Japanese government, I guess why, you know, following the war, hasn't it just been, hasn't it, I guess why hasn't it come out in the ensuing years since the war ended? It seems like, it seems, it would seem like the kind of thing that, you know, would be revealed you know, in the 50s or the 60s or something like that. But here we are in 2013, and neither country's ever fessed up to what actually happened. Well, I I think the biggest reason is that the Navy and the Coast Guard could be blamed for what happened. It was really a snafu at, at Howland Island with those radios. I think you have enough information that you vaguely understand the problem. Yeah. And they could, they were afraid that, uh, the government, the government could be blamed for the Earhart loss. In other words, uh, why was the radio situation such a mess and why didn't they make contact and why didn't they give her the, right, the, right. the bearings into the task and, and only they really, the Coast Guard was a, had their, heads in the news, and the Navy had their heads in the news, and when it came time to land on the island of Saipan, it is believed that the Marine Corps found the grave of Amelia Earhart and had it exhumed, and the body sent back to Washington. What? That's crazy. Uh, no. In secret? In secret. If you've got a copy of Lost Fight... I'll give you the the page number. You want the page number? No, I don't have it with me. Uh, it has to do. All right, it has to do with the four forty four, four forty. I can't say it. Four four one four forty first counter army counter intelligence corps has the information and it's locked up and it's been put away and nobody has access to it. Why don't they have access to it? Because it amounts to getting access to the CIA, and that's nobody's business. So that's <laughs> no. that's that's another problem why it's been hushed up. Because they, in order to re, to, to divulge that, they would have to divulge their sources and their secrets, and and uh, you're not going to talk to the CIA or counterintelligence into doing something like that. So there's reasons why it's been partially hushed up, hushed up, and it has been hushed up. See, that's amazing to me because, like I said, I, I mean, I just it's here to it 75 years later. I don't think anyone would really necessarily hold the the Navy or the Coast Guard accountable at this point. I, I think I think it's such an old story that the, the people who would be accountable are long since gone. So it's it's not like there's going to be like lawsuits or anything like that. So I'm surprised that the government still doesn't want to admit to that. Except maybe that it would be this sort of public relations diplomatic problem with Japan. You know, people would somehow all of a sudden resent Japan for for what they did to Amelia Earhart 75 years ago. But it, it seems like it, it. You know, the time is now for people just for the government just to release this information if they haven't. Oh well, absolutely. Uh, freedom Freedom of Information Act. But if they're worried about Amelia Earhart, what about all of the American prisoners of war and what the Japanese did to them on the island on the islands of Japan? Right. My God, the atrocities atrocities were simply something terrible. So she, in a sense, is almost worse than that. Yeah, 
So she almost is in a, in a sense a victim of the of the necessity a victim of the necessity to keep this to keep all of the atrocities quiet. Yeah, right. I'd say so. Now, what about now? You said you you became friends with Muriel Earhart. What were her thoughts on what happened to Amelia Earhart? And was she ever given any? Because one would think if they sent the bodies back. There would be some contact with the Earhart family to let them, you know, it, keep, you know, privately take them into the loop, if you will, so they could at least get their family members' bodies back or, or have some, you know, closure on what happened. I mean, how, what was her whole perspective on all this? Well, Muriel uh, knew nothing about airplanes. She's a sweet, lovely person. And the only thing she knew was what Commander Warner Thompson from the Atasca told her. And he told her that she crashed and sank, and that was the end of it. And that's the only thing she knew. Uh, I tried to quiz her about that uh, extensively when I was there. I was in Boston talking to her, and we became fast friends. In fact, we wrote letters back and forth. Some of the letters are in the, the back of uh, the book, Lost Fly. You'll see some letters there from Muriel. And uh, she absolutely uh, had no idea what happened, and she just thought she crashed in the sea and that was the end of it but there was a lot more to it than that a lot more right and she never no she she never uh, could tell anything any different because that's all she knew and uh, Warner Thompson and uh, the Coast Guard and the Navy both of them were uh, overly anxious to dispose of the matter and the best way to do it was crashed in sank so that that uh uh, but I think the public is entitled to know it makes a great mystery. That's for sure. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Well, that's like I said. I've been waiting seven years here to talk about this this story. It's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. So you're saying that? Oh, I guess let's talk a little bit about these these briefcase stories because you know we're it, to, to really unlock this mystery we need the physical evidence and and there's stories of of uh i believe it was u.s soldiers when they arrived in the marshall islands finding amelia Earhart's briefcase which then subsequently disappeared uh is okay, that, is that, that correct was Saipan. that was Saipan. that, that wasn't yeah. uh, oh i'm sorry okay yeah, okay you're talking about robert wallach wallach and uh he was an old-time marine from world war Two, and uh he would tell you in no uncertain terms what he what he found. I talked to him on the telephone. I spent about uh, two hours on the telephone with him, and boy, did he blast my ears off! And he says, "I'll tell you what I found, lady. I found her briefcase." <laughs> and then she, he says, "A passport was in there, and all her important papers and maps and everything else." And don't tell me I didn't find it. That's that's the way he talked. And what he did was he gave the briefcase to, uh, I don't know, a Navy captain or a, com- a commander in the Navy. And he, and that was the last he saw of it. And his, uh, he gave him a receipt for the, for the briefcase, but he lost the receipt. And unfortunately, like most things that were Amelia Earhart's involved, why, uh, the, the artifacts seemed to disappear. With one, and that's the inspection plate. We got that, <laughs> and the door parts. Uh, but uh, the briefcase uh, uh, was quite real to Robert Wallach. He was the machine gunner in the Marine Corps, 
and the invasion of Saipan, and boy, did he lay out his case. If you didn't believe him, you had to be careful or you'd get socked in the jaw. I mean, he was really, he was really mad about it. And what was in the briefcase? Well, uh, her passport, uh, Fred Noon's passport, all her important papers. Oh, wow. Uh, maps, permits. Imagine there was money in the, in the briefcase. Because they had to take along a certain amount of money to buy gasoline with or pay for maintenance or whatever they needed. And, uh, probably some of the aeronautical maps might have been in there. Uh, the, the one thing they did have was the canceled postage stamps, uh, postage envelopes, um, envelopes with the, uh, with the indasha from all the places where they landed were stored in the airplane. Uh, those have never been found, but the briefcase has been. And, uh, however, uh, Robert Wallach's son, made the statement and he thought that uh, the the naval officer that he gave the briefcase to, the ship might have been sunk. That's why the briefcase hasn't in the wars out there off the coast of Saipan, which was... Oh, God. Yeah. That, what a weird... That would be an even, yeah, an even stranger fateful twist that the evidence then also yeah, uh, sinks. The question is, how did they get the briefcase back? They couldn't exactly send it U.S. mail. So uh, the ship that it was on might have been sunk in uh, another one of the invasions because I'm sure they didn't turn around and go back to Washington, D.C. just to transport the briefcase. So uh, the, it, it could have been sunk on the ship at sea. Strange. So, uh, yeah. Now, you also say here on the website that there's a second briefcase of sorts, um, that, that these three yeah. Marines... Uh, entered a Japanese barracks and found a room outfitted for a woman and had a whole bunch of uh, evidence and stuff in there. So I guess talk about that that additional uh, bit of eyewitness testimony. And that was from February of 44. Okay, that was the island of Roy Namur in the Marshall Islands. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second briefcase was the briefcase they found that was empty. Uh, in in the barracks there, or no? I I think this was on the they found it on on the beaches or someplace, and had the initials A E on it, and that's all there was to that one. And the thing was empty, and, and that would be the second briefcase. Uh, the primary briefcase, I believe, was taken to Saipan, and and uh, that was the one that was locked up at the safe that Robert Wallach found. The second briefcase was the one from the island of Roy Namur, which I believe was found lying on the beach or someplace and discarded with the initials AE on it. And it really didn't amount to too much, but that's that's the only description we have of it. Yeah, well, here on the website it says uh, the three Marines entered a Japanese barracks and found a room outfitted for a woman. Uh, a W.B. Jackson said they found a suitcase containing feminine items and a bound, locked book lettered 10-year diary of Amelia Earhart. What do you, what do you know about that whole aspect of it? But that's, we've been looking for that for a long time and it's never been found. Uh, whatever happened to those items, uh, we simply don't know. Yeah. Disappeared. Disappeared the same as the briefcase and all. <laughs> And all the rest of the artifacts, with the exception of the inspection plate and the door parts, we've got that. 
<laughs> we hope. Say a prayer that we're right, and if it is, if we are right, and it gets the publicity it deserves, why? I think it's going to change a lot of people's minds. Absolutely. Now, now what about the part of the story here? uh, It's sort of in addition to the Japanese capture, and that is that that Amelia Earhart came back from Japan uh, before or after World War II in disguise. Uh, Talk about that whole part of the theory, because then it gets even wilder. Okay, there's a big theory that was advanced by Joe Kloss and Joe Gervais, uh, who teamed up. Uh, Joe, Joe Kloss wrote the book, and and they decided that there was a woman by the name of Irene Bolam who came back to this country disguised as in disguise when she was, in fact, Amelia Earhart. But uh, Amelia Earhart was was taken from the island of Saipan to Weishan Concentration Camp in China. And from Weishan Concentration Camp, she was taken to Tokyo. And after the war and the city was liberated, she sneaked back into the United States with the help of a Catholic priest. Uh, Father or Monsignor, I, I have to look up his name. And she's been hiding out ever since. However, the problem is that her family never accepted this woman, Irene Bolam, as their sister. Yeah. Or as George... Uh, George Putnam's wife, she was never accepted as that. And uh, that right there was enough to sour anyone. We have a, a uh, considerable uh, treatise in, in Lost Flight on disproving Irene Bolam. And uh, it, the whole thing turned out to be a series of Amazing incidents, but uh, a little bit like Gardner Island, completely unprovable. And if you get a copy of Lost Flight, you can read the actually an essay of of uh, four of the people I work with who wrote on the Irene Bolam situation. Right, right, and it sounds like the you're saying that did did the Earhart family ever even encounter this Irene Bolam? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. They knew each other. Uh, uh, Muriel knew her, and it was just a casual hello, and that was it. Hmm. And she never said anything to her. And if Muriel didn't know her own sister, uh, I'd say there was something wrong someplace. That's really strange. And and And, and it doesn't really make any sense... Why would Amelia Earhart come back to the United States under an assumed name anyway? Just yeah, that's look, true. You know, See, it's, it's another situation like Gardner Island. It doesn't make any sense. It just simply doesn't make any sense. I give uh, Gillespie and, and Tiger a lot of credit for doing a lot of work on the subject matter, but it just doesn't work. I, I can't believe what they have there. and I, I can't believe that, and I can't believe Iron Bolam. Either one of them, they just uh, are uh, nonsensical events, basically. Now, how come you know you you're very skeptical and critical of the of the Gardner Island expeditions? Why hasn't Tigar 
turned and looked at the the Marshall Islands. Uh, if if you think there's, if you know, considering how how strong you think the case is for that as the as the landing point. Well, I really can't answer that. Hmm. And the, to make the story short, I wish you would. Uh, but uh, he doesn't seem to be inclined on uh, Marshall Island theories or Saipan, Saipan theories, either one. And uh, he's going to make or break on Gardner Island. And so far, it's, it's a wasted effort. There's nothing there to go on. Nothing. Nobody saw anything. Nobody heard anything. The natives don't know anything. Nobody see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Nothing there. Yeah. Just a bunch of junk off the beach, basically. Now, why do you think that, I, I realize it's been 75 years plus now, 76 years uh, since the disappearance, but I, I find it remarkable in a way that this story, uh, now I'm a child of the 80s, I remember unsolved mysteries and sightings and that kind of stuff, and th this was always sort of one of the staple paranormal, for lack of a better term, cases out there. Why do you think that here now in the last, like, 15, 20 years, it's really kind of fallen off the radar, uh, no pun intended, it, you know, to the paranormal folks out there? You know what I mean? It's kind of, it's not it's not nearly as discussed as much as it used to be, like the Bermuda Triangle kind of, and, and some of these other stories that were big in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s uh, that, that aren't now anymore. Well, I think a lot of people are losing interest because there hasn't been any artifacts found. And the, the claims that have been made, and, and uh, especially by Tiger and Gardner Island, have, none of them have ever proven anything. I think uh, the public really is getting a little bit tired of listening to that stuff. You know, after a while it gets to be stale. Just another story from Gardner Island. And uh, like with the freckle cream and and uh, all the rest of the... Uh, the bone stories and the DNA, none of it is ever proven. Fun. I think the tired, the public is getting tired of it. I think this much, if if uh, that inspection plate, if we can get that inspection plate uh, on television and and get the story of uh, stories of what I'm telling you, which is part of the Amelia Earhart mystery, it's a documentary with three episodes. The first two are what happened, and the third episode is is Milliatol Marshall Islands. We can get that on television. I think it's going to spark a lot of interest. Yeah. I, I I hope it will. And because that's what it takes is the publicity to make this work. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I said, uh, I've heard this captured by the Japanese theory out there for a while, but it hasn't really ever. It gets drowned out by the by the Gardner Island stuff. So yeah, I, I think people think it's too fantastic a story to believe almost. Do you know what I mean? I think people, yeah. that might, it, it almost suffers from the truth is stranger than fiction. If it is true. Do you know what I mean? People say, oh, I can't, I can't believe that. You know, they can't believe that she would be captured and, and executed. Yeah, true. Well, no, this, uh, that's more believable than, uh, Gardner Island. I just, uh, she, she vanished on a, Deserted island that's uh, uh, captured and executed by the Japanese is more like it. Uh, people are slowly coming around, but they don't have the whole story. And what we're 
attempting to do is to give them the whole story. I think you're getting part of it. I think you understand some of it. And uh, you need to read the book, number one, and uh, I'm praying that a few more uh, months goes by and we'll be able to get this on television. It's interesting. You seem very confident that you'll that this is a solvable case. I guess what what really puzzles me in a way is you know here we are seventy five plus years later. You worry, you know the 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 thing about racing the Undertaker. I mean, we, the, the most of the people involved in all this are long since gone, and you know you wonder if it if it's a mystery that's going to be lost to the sands of time but you you feel like that with this new uh, evidence and everything that that we may be closer than ever to actually getting to the bottom of this right well the releasing of the files in fredericksburg or i found out the truth about this joseph Gurr, all of a sudden the, the story began to fit together really good i think we found out uh, what really happened at Howlin island but the, she's sitting there trying to to direction fine with uh, on high frequency. Impossible. The radios were never designed to do that. And that was the real reason why she failed at Howland Island. And I put the blame on Joseph Gurr. That, that will be in the documentaries for television. And then we find uh, the inspection place at Millie Atoll. And that, I think that's the icing on the cake. Yeah. I, I think we're pinning it down to the point where we think we've got this located and pinned down, a mystery solved, so to speak. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. You know, it's like I was saying at the beginning of the conversation when we started talking about the story in general. It, it's, uh, you know, it didn't really sort of cross my mind or dawn on me till we got further into this. But, I mean, if we're... You know, we got listeners right now that are like in their twenties and stuff. That they're probably like three or four generations removed now from the mystery. So it really has, it really is slipping further and further back into the sands of time. Well, that's true. Well, we intend to resurrect the dead. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We've no. got a Joan of Arc movie coming up here. See, so we get the movie on the screen. That that would really spark a lot of interest. Absolutely. The movie, the movie and the uh, television documentaries with three episodes. You know, I'm always hearing about these trips to uh, Gardner Island to find stuff and, and that, that sort of thing. How come, I guess you're saying that, that Dick Spink did do that, but I'm, I, was, I guess I was asking, you know, I'm surprised there aren't more expeditions to Saipan or... Uh, well, there have been expeditions to Saipan, only they never made the headlines. And there has been expeditions to the Marshall Islands, only they've never been made, or they, but they have never made the headlines because there wasn't anything found. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, the trump card that uh, Gillespie and uh, Tiger has. They claim they find these things, <clears throat> but the findings are completely uh, uh, erroneous. They they simply don't add up. There's, there's no way that. They can be traced to Amelia Earhart. None of them. But then that doesn't stop him. He still keeps putting out pep, uh, press releases. Oh, I found so and so and so and so and so and so and. And he just keeps going with it, and that keeps it alive. Yeah. Well, it's it's disappointing because uh, you know, for those of us who are real old school paranormal enthusiasts, this is one mystery that we want to see solved. That 
that, you know, okay. it should be solvable. Yeah. It's amazing that it hasn't been solved by now. I'm still amazed. I got to go back to this and, uh, you know, I, I still am amazed that that the, if the U.S. government and the Japanese government know about this, that they still won't just reveal what happened. I, I, I you know, I, I find that kind of maddening in a sense. Um, you know, but I guess really part of it to answer sort of my own devil's advocate uh, perspective is that at this point, who in the army or the U.S. government would even know? Like I said, we're, we're three or four generations removed from this story, so it's, I guess it could stand a reason that, you know, you could probably get the head of the Navy in there right now, and he probably wouldn't have any idea where the information about Amelia Earhart could be found. That's true. True. Well, no, see, that's uh, getting to the point where it's almost water over the dam. But uh, bringing back a and a historical story like this, I think uh, we'll eventually, uh, assuming we've got the right evidence, and uh, this, the story about Joseph Gurr, we've got, I've got the evidence on that. I've, I've got the interview that that was made and was tape recorded, by the way. Yeah. Uh, we've got that, so I'm not worried about that part, but... Uh, I think uh, you're going to hear a lot about this in the future, a lot. And I and I hope that uh, the people who are behind it, well, I hope um, it helps the sale of the book, uh, The Lost Flight of a Million Heart. And I and I believe that uh, they they might get successive friends on television so everyone can see the documentaries. Because they're very good. They they cover the two areas. They cover what really happened and with the radio situation. Right. And and then the third episode, the Millie Atoll situation, where we found the inspection flight. Now you're saying episode? Is it a TV program that's out right now that we know about, or is it like an independent program? No, it's it's in the process of being. Of uh, being produced, I Allied Artists has it. Felix Gerard at Allied Artists. He's the one that you're looking at the website. He's the one that designed that website, mm-hmm. and he's the one who's working on this to bring it to the screen. And we think that we will probably be be able to sell the documentaries to uh, the Discovery Channel or. National Geographic or History Channel on somewhere in that line. We've talked about how this plate that you've recovered is the, you know, is sort of the, um, you know, the linchpin to this this whole breakthrough, if you will. Where, where is it right now and what needs to be done with it and, and you know, what's the next step to be taken with uh, with this evidence? Well, Dick Spank sent me the plate. I've got this, the plate right here in my office. And he sent me uh, part of the door parts and he sent me a knob off the upholstery. I've got them here. Only I uh, don't want to be the be the safekeeper. I'm going to send it back to Dick Spink because he needs to go out and start making lectures and actually show them the plate after the lecture is over with. So I think he's the one who should have the plate. Yeah. Uh, I I don't really want to be responsible for it. If something happens to it, then they could blame me. But and making difference, we've got enough pictures of it that uh, we can we can reproduce everything but the plate. <laughs> yeah, you're not concerned for your safety or anything like that. You're not. You don't think someone's going to no. come and like steal it or anything, right? 
No, that's uh, th- even if they did, we still have plenty of pictures. Right, right. You just don't want it around, really. Uh, yeah, uh, I would appreciate. Uh, I'm I'm sending it back to Dick Spink. I'm not going to keep it here much longer. Maybe a few more days, and so uh, I'll let this Dick Spink. Uh, Lock it up in a safe. It needs to be in a safety deposit box someplace. That's where it needs to be. Okay. Now, yeah, you definitely got to send me these pictures because uh, people are going to want to see that for sure. Oh yeah. And and can there? I guess, like I said, what 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 else? Now we know where it is. What else needs to be done? Is there any sort of like testing that can be done on this thing, or is it more just sort of um, trying to match it up to the pictures of the plane? Well, right now we're just trying to match it up uh, with pictures off the airplane. There's two 10Es, Lockheed 10Es, electors. One is in New Jersey, and the other one is in the state of Washington, Seattle. Mm-hmm. And I believe it would be the same plate off those airplanes. However, uh, those are 10Es. However, the Model 12, Lockheed 12, L12, it was the same airplane, only slightly smaller, but it had the same engines. And because it had the same engines, its inspection plate might be the same inspection plate. I don't know. Yeah. I didn't even mention this, but I, I feel like maybe we should, uh, if we're going to be the, a comprehensive look at the whole story, um, you know, tell, I guess just, just quickly talk about and dismiss the whole Tokyo Rose aspect of uh, the Amelia Earhart story, because that's been around for years, and it, it seems pretty well uh, debunked or, or, you know, not given any credence at this point. But like I said, if we're going to be a comprehensive conversation, I guess we have to touch on that. So talk a little bit about the Tokyo Rose rumors. Okay, the Tokyo Rose rumors started uh, with the rumors that Earhart was uh, taken from Saipan prison to Weishin concentration camp. And from Washington concentration camp, that's in China during the uh, 1930s. From Washington, uh, she was taken to Tokyo, and in Tokyo she was inveigled into announcing uh, herself as Tokyo Rose. And there doesn't seem to be any substance to it. It's another uh, uh, dead end, like uh, uh, Irene Bolam. Uh, uh, what proof is there that uh, she was Tokyo Rose? It's a bunch of hooliganism, really. And uh, if she was taken from Washington concentration camp to Tokyo, what what is the uh, basis for that? And and not only that, but there's voice recognition involved with this. Uh, for instance, uh, Irene Bolam. Uh, had a New Jersey accent. She talked with a New Jersey accent, you know, like that. <laughs> and uh, since when does a girl from Kansas uh, have a New Jersey accent? So, uh, if, if we had the actual Tokyo Rose broadcast, uh, they could have done a voice print on that and disproved it very easily. But I'll tell you the truth, I don't think there was enough interest in this Tokyo Rose stuff that anybody ever paid any attention to it. Right. Sounds more like an urban legend. Oh, yeah. That's why, you know, that's why it took me so long to even mention it to you. But I figured if we didn't, it would come up later that someone would say, why, you know, ask why we didn't get into it. So I figured, uh, might as well discuss it and dismiss it. So you don't think that there's any credence to that? I know, none at all. Okay. Um, Tell me a little bit about, uh, the book. 
The Lost Flight of Amelia Earhart. Uh, now, this is a this is sort of a fictional uh, tale which weaves in all of this research, correct? Yeah, correct. Uh, actually, I I wrote the screenplay first, and we weren't getting anywhere with the screenplay, and I didn't have anything to do, so I decided I was going to turn it into a book. And that's what I did, and it's kind of a semi-novel uh, uh, type of uh, book, uh, a blueprint, you might say, but a format, that's the word I'm looking for. But uh, there's a lot of historical evidence in there and a lot of reasons why as to what happened and the 281 message. And... Uh, I wanted it so that uh, it would be easy to read. It's a very, it's an easy reading book. A lot of people have said that, and I think once you've been through that, that you you really understand what happened with Amelia Earhart and that flight across the Atlantic where she soloed. That was oh my goodness, just two hours out of Newfoundland, she was fighting for her life, and the wings were icing up, and the plane was nosediving almost into the sea, and she, and the, the gasoline line over the fuselage broke and streaming down her neck with, uh, I think it was probably 87 octane gasoline. And, oh, boy. And uh, the, the speedometer broke. She didn't know how fast she was going. And uh, I don't see how she really made it across the sea, but she did make it across the sea. And uh, that's in the book. You've got that. And what I tried to do, and you've also got the, the uh, voyage of the Norma Hall. That was uh, Vincent Astor's yacht that he went cruising in the Marshall Islands looking for Amelia Earhart that President Roosevelt wanted him to do, and you've got the letter there that he wrote back to Roosevelt, and then in the back sections of the book, uh, there's, it's, I think it's what, 371 pages, something like that, I have to look it up, and the back pages of the book are the emails and the, the, the uh, research information that went into this, and that's very interesting, and, and you've got uh, the the disproving of uh, uh, the Irene Bolam stories. And you've also got another important part. You've got uh, the actual radio logs of the Itasca, and you can see what the transmissions were, and they're translated from radio code into English that you can understand. Yeah. Uh, and that's easy to, to read that. Uh, 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 there's a time series. Okay, so that's all in the book. Where can folks pick up? Uh, the Lost Flight of Amelia Earhart. How, how can they get it? Okay, off the website. Uh, I'm working with the, the website would be the place to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, lostflight.net or ameliaearhartmovie.com. Okay. Uh, lostflight.net is my website, Prairie Books. And uh, the movie is Allied, uh, the movie website is Allied Artists. Excellent, excellent. Uh, yeah. Uh, we, I'm negotiating with Casebook uh, publishers, and I believe that they will be the ones who put it in the bookstores. 
Right now, I haven't gotten to it yet. I just too much with the television programs and everything going on. Yeah. Best place to buy it right now is the websites. Those two websites. All right, lostflight.net and or ameliaearhartmovie.com. Probably lostflight.net easier for folks who probably will have a hard time spelling uh <laughs> spelling all that. Um, okay, so so I guess the final question here, where we wrap it up, is you know what's next for you? You got these documentaries and stuff. Where can people find out? You know where this new information is going to be coming from from you at, at ameliaearhartmovie.com and lostflight.net. Should they stay tuned there to find out, you know, if yes. and when these documentaries are going to air and, and, and more about the evidence? Yes. Uh, uh, I have a spot on Facebook, but I haven't been keeping it up to date because I'm too busy with all these other things. Mm-hmm. But the best uh, spot are the, uh, the lost, is the lostflight.net, lostflight.net and ameliaearhartmovie.com. In particular, Lost Flight Net, because I keep that up constantly. Something really sensational comes along. And those things on lostflight.net that are not really on uh, com, which uh, Felix, that's I blame Felix for that. And he <laughs> to do certain things. Ah, uh, that Felix, he's he's always up to no good. I gotta give <laughs> I, I gotta give credit here. It's Pat Daniels from uh, the Fringe Radio Show on uh, KTKK AM 630. I was on his program a couple months ago, and he gave you a glowing recommendation and suggested that we have you on the show. So I want to uh, make sure I mention that. Yeah, I spent about two hours on the radio with him, and he gave me a good workout, I'll tell you that. Well. Almost as good as yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, on that note, uh, you know, folks, stay tuned to lostflight.net and, uh, keep your eyes peeled for Carol Lynn Dow because you're going to be seeing more from her, I'm sure, in the weeks and months and years to come as this story, uh, keeps revolving. I, I really, I gotta give you credit, uh, you know, so few people are looking at the Amelia Earhart story still that you really, you're doing yeoman's work to keep this thing alive and, and hopefully get to the bottom of it once and for all. Uh, you know, for the, for the folks like me who've been looking at all these different mysteries, to, to get one of these solved would be just fantastic. So, you know, let's hope this is at least one of many that will eventually be solved and it'll be thanks to your work and, uh, you know, trying to get to the bottom of, uh, what really happened to Amelia Earhart. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, once again, thank you. Carol, for appearing on the program, and keep us posted on on the latest news. And uh, you know, hopefully, we'll bring you back maybe uh, once the case is solved, and we'll bring you back for a celebratory uh, conversation where we, uh, you know, rub it in the face of all the skeptics. Right? <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, I'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> that does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season Seven. Big, big thanks to Carol Lynn Dow for coming on the show. Be sure to check out her website, www.lostflight.net. Pretty simple, all one word, lostflight.net. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And since we skipped this segment over the last couple of episodes, we definitely want to dive into the mailbag here this week. So let's do so with three long emails from the listeners. The first one comes from Neil, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I enjoy your shows and am a relatively new listener. I think I found you by searching for Bart Sibrell interviews. 
While I know your programming focuses on the esoteric, listening to your broadcasts with guests like Gerard Williams, Kendall Carver, Andre Eglishan, etc., to me, you really shine. I've been listening to talk radio since my dad exposed me to it when I was young, 40-plus years ago, and your skills as a host are outstanding when dealing with mainstream stuff. You are interesting and fun, and have taken the time to learn the subject matter while not stepping on the guest. You're no slouch with the paranormal-slash-esoteric stuff, but for me, gripping contemporary subject matter with an engaging host that knows his boundaries and a solid guest makes for outstanding listening. Thanks for your work, Neil. Thank you for writing in, Neil, and thank you for your kind words, my friend. I am humbled by your email here. And you've touched on pretty much a, a big facet of the program over the last few seasons, and that is our move, I wouldn't say necessarily away from the paranormal, but our adoption of the peripheral topics of esoterica. I do love the, as you call it, mainstream stuff, contemporary subject matter. And I hope to do more of that stuff in the future. And stay tuned here to the end of the program because we've got a very similar type topic on the next edition of the program. And chances are, as we get rolling into Season 8, you're going to be hearing a lot more of that stuff here on the program. Because, you know, we've been doing the show for seven years now. We're going to be kicking off our eighth year in a few months. And there's only so many times you can rehash the paranormal. There's only so many ways you can examine UFOs and Bigfoot without really just becoming tedious. And I can assure you we're always going to be covering UFOs, Bigfoot, conspiracy theories, ghosts on the program. But I'm definitely making an effort more and more as each year goes by to include more fringe topics and more stuff that really just sort of falls into the edges of the paranormal and esoteric. And based on listener feedback, that is definitely something that the folks listening to the program want to hear as well. So thank you for writing in, Neil. Much appreciated. And uh, keep tuning in, I guess, is all I have to say beyond that. The next email is a bit of a critical one, but let's tackle this one as well. It comes from Dave in Wichita, Kansas. Here's what he has to say. Just so you know, I am not hiding from you. I am Dave in Wichita, Kansas. I know pretty much what you are going to say, because the show is yours, and you can pontificate on this matter as long as you want. There will be no two-way conversation here. You will read my brief criticism, and then you will take as long as you want to abuse and disrespect what I have to say. I fully expect to have to quit listening to your show, which is a real shame. You have such interesting shows, and your interviewing style has improved greatly the last few years, that I will miss you. I do listen behind several months, so I will listen until you respond to my email. I once listened to a wildly popular podcast, but then the hosts started eating and drinking without muting their microphone. I am old-fashioned, in that I think any media should have just a tad bit of decorum. Listening to mouth sounds is not enlightening at all. I stopped listening to those folks. The same goes for your continual lighting, inhaling, and puffing on cigarettes or joints, or whatever it is that you are doing. It is absolutely gross to listen to your smoking activities. I am not saying you should quit smoking, but for God's sake, learn where the mute button on the microphone is, or invent one, or refrain for an hour or so. Please, 
show some respect. I shall miss you, Tim. Take care. Dave in Wichita, Kansas. Thank you for writing in, Dave. I've already actually reached out to Dave because I was a little put off here by this tone, in a sense, where he expects that I'm going to abuse and disrespect what he has to say. I don't, I don't know where you get that from, Dave. That's not the style of the program. That's not my style as the host. I respect all of the listeners, and I respect their feedback, whether it's positive or negative. So, you know, uh, put the gun back in the holster, Dave. We're all friends here, pal. And with regards to the smoking, first of all, I will absolutely clarify, it's not joints. I'm not smoking joints while I'm doing the interview. That would be just more chaotic and more bizarre of a program than ever. So it's just cigarettes, and I've gotten mixed reaction from people, actually, Dave. You're the first person to write in and and be really critical of the uh, raw sound of the lighting and the inhaling during the program. A lot of folks really actually kind of enjoy it. They think it gives it sort of uh, an underground, raw feel to the program. But I see your point of view, and I respect your point of view, and uh, the best I can tell you right now is stay tuned to Season 8, because I am under tremendous pressure from family and friends to quit smoking. And I've made some real good strides toward quitting smoking, and I'm hopeful that by the time Season 8 starts, I will be smoke-free. So we've only got a couple more episodes in Season 7, and then hopefully by the time Season 8 starts, there will be no more lighting, inhaling, or puffing on cigarettes during the program. I can't make any promises, but I'm really going to focus on that in a big way once I get into the hiatus portion between Seasons 7 and 8. And I'm sorry that you feel so passionately about uh, giving up the program because of this distraction. Because really it's a minute portion of the show. I think maybe you only hear me lighting a cigarette three, four times in an episode, maybe at most. But it really seems to be something that is upsetting to Dave, and I respect that. And I apologize that it is. And as I said, hopefully it will become a moot point in the future as uh, my personal quest to kick the habit of smoking continues here in the summer. And hopefully it will be successful by the time we roll out Season 8. And hopefully by then, Dave will still be listening to the program. Dave, don't give up on us, pal. We're a work in progress. So just stick with Banal of America Audio because we evolve as the years go on. The next email comes from Caroline in Eltham, New Zealand, and here's what she has to say. I recently discovered your audio archives and just wanted to say a heartfelt thank you. I recently started a home-based business and beat the boredom at my computer by listening to your podcasts. You sound grounded and aren't out to impress others, except in doing the best job you can. I haven't heard you disrespect anyone yet, despite the difficult personalities you sometimes interact with. I'm not saying that there isn't an occasional shoot-me-now moment when some expert or other turns out to be a bit of what we call in New Zealand a dryballs, origin of the term unknown. I could rattle on at length, but let me finish by telling you a strange waking dream I had the other morning. I was lying there in bed, willing myself to arise this very cold morning, when I heard your show announced in my left ear. Then I heard you talking to a British guy. He had a posh accent, not like a lot of the Brits you have spoken with. 
no offense to them. Here's what your topic was. The development of a new man, or a new kind of human. It is my understanding, the managed, I didn't get by who, upgrading of humanity through various methods, including getting us to think differently, but a physical element was implied also. Now, I don't go around ruminating or reading about stuff like that, and haven't heard anyone talk about any such thing. I have forgotten the exact words, but that's the gist of it. So thanks for that unexpected audio. A great start to my day. Many thanks, and I swear when my business takes off, I'll be making regular donations to Banal of America. Caroline, in Eltham, District of Taranaki, North Island, New Zealand. Amazing. I'm blown away uh, by an email coming all the way from New Zealand. That's about as far away from BOAHQ as you can get. And Caroline's down there listening to the show while putting together her home-based business. So thank you for writing in, Carolyn. I'm just completely blown away by the geography of the email in and of itself. When I first glanced at the email, I thought you were asking me about that topic, but now I'm seeing that actually it was a dream you had, which is kind of spooky, because I haven't actually done that topic yet on the show, but part of me is getting like a pre-deja vu feeling. Like, I'm going to be doing that topic at some point in the future, and I'm going to have a guest pretty much talking about what you're saying, and I'm going to freak out, because it's something that was predicted by Caroline in New Zealand way back in June of 2013. So, we may have the beginnings of a really weird turn of events in the future. Uh, I would love if that happened, so we'll see if it does. I'm not going to try and make it happen, but... If it does happen, that would be really weird. And uh, I don't know what it says about you, Caroline, that you're dreaming about the program, but I guess it's cool. Maybe maybe you're listening too much. I don't know. Just kidding, of course. Uh, (laughs) Beyond that, thank you for your kind words about the program. Glad to hear you've discovered the audio archives, and I hope you are enjoying digging into all 200-plus episodes. Stay tuned, because you never know. Hopefully, in the future, we'll stumble across that very snippet of dialogue that you had a precognitive dream about that one cold morning. That would be absolutely mind-blowing and something that I would just completely love. So, once again, thank you for writing in. Caroline, best of luck with your business down there in New Zealand. We got one more tiny little correspondence. It comes from SuperDanWonder5 on the BOA forum, theusofe.com. He uh, bumped the episode with James Gutman from BOA Audio Season 1, and he says, Wow, I'm like seven years late on this one. Any chance there'll be another wrestling-type show in the future? I really enjoyed this one. I kind of plucked that one from the forum as a segue to two things. First of all, yes, there's a very good chance we'll be doing another wrestling-type show in the future. I'm kind of working on something like that for Season 8, and the guest potentially is a really, really cool guest, and someone I think people will really enjoy hearing from. And hopefully by the end of 2013, BOA Audio will have ventured back into the squared circle for another discussion on pro wrestling. 
And the other reason why I plucked that comment out from the forum is to segue into the call for guest suggestions. I've already got a bunch here from BOA Audio listeners due to my call for guest suggestions on the last edition of the program. We're definitely putting together the list for Season 8. We're compiling the to-speak-with list or the to-investigate list. And that's where you come in, folks, the BOA Audio listeners. Send me your guest suggestions. Tell me who you'd like to hear on the program, and I will do my best to look into their stuff and see if they'd be a good fit for the program, and if so, have them on BOA Audio for an extended conversation. How do you get in touch with me? That's simple. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, or just head on over to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. And if you want something a little more interactive like Super Dan Wonder 5 did, you can join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. It is the United States of Esoterica. If you don't want to write all the letters down, just head on over to Banal of America and click the forum button. Additionally, I am on Facebook and Twitter, so just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and that will bring up my pages on those social network sites. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. Additionally, and finally, we are on Facebook in Benal of America form. We are at 984 likes, so we are a mere 16 likes away from the long-anticipated 1,000 likes. How do you find us there? Easily. You just punch in Banal of America on Facebook. That'll bring up the official BOA page on Facebook. Like us if you have not done so yet. Like number 1,000 gets a shout-out here at the end of the program. And chances are a number of folks along the way to a 1,000 will also get shout-outs here at the end. So don't be afraid to be like number 990 or something like that, because there's a good chance you're going to get a shout-out here at the end of the program. Up next, please allow me to take a moment here and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru Jeremy Boston. BOA 3.0 is chugging along. I just had a meeting with Ray Weigel recently about the progress on BOA 3.0. Jeremy Boston is hard at work putting the final touches on the graphics for BOA 3.0. It's all coming together very good, and it is hopefully going to be rolled out to the BOA visitors very, very soon. So for now, all I can say really is keep an eye on Banal of America because a change is in the air. A paradigm shift of epic proportions is on the cusp at BOA. The future has nearly arrived, my friends. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the Banal of America franchise. How do you do that? That's simple. Head on over to banalofamerica.com and 
click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, you can do so by writing to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866, and you can find the complete address at Benal of America under the PayPal button. It bears repeating, as always, folks, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio, we are venturing into the world of alternative history once again as we welcome back our friend Bill Burns, who is the co-author of the new book, Dr. Feelgood, which is subtitled The Shocking Story of the Doctor Who May Have Changed History by Treating and Drugging JFK, Marilyn, Elvis, and Other Prominent Figures. I can't say too much about this because I actually haven't sat down and spoken with Bill yet. We're going to be talking uh, next week about Dr. Feelgood, but I am well-versed in the book, having read quite a bit of it already, and am wrapping that up soon. And it is tremendous stuff, folks. It is compelling stuff. It is about a man by the name of Dr. Max Jacobson, who emigrated from Europe to America and designed this quote-unquote, feel-good potion, if you will, that actually contained methamphetamines and subsequently got many, many powerful people in the world of entertainment and politics hooked on his serum. It is amazing stuff. It is really compelling information and shocking in a lot of ways how far-reaching and just impactful the influence of Dr. Max Jacobson was on the mid-20th century. So we're going to be delving into that on the next edition of BOA Audio with Bill Burns. I am looking forward to a very compelling conversation. And on that note, we close the book on another installment of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks to Carol Lynn Dow for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Thanks to Neil, Dave, Caroline and Super Dan Wonder 5 for their participation in BOA audio listener feedback. And of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA audio listeners, the folks who tune in to the very end of the program and listen to my ramblings here at the end of the show. Thank you for your enduring support of the program. It is truly and humbly appreciated. And of course, once again, Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.